Hello and welcome to the Brave Business Podcast, brought to you by accounting, tax, audit and advisory firm Blick Rothenberg. Brave by name and brave by nature, this series is different. Aimed at entrepreneurial businesses, we focus on providing practical guidance, timely insights and professional opinions from industry experts, helping you make informed decisions for your business. I'm Declan Curry, journalist and broadcaster. In today's episode, we take a look at the key considerations for establishing a UK business. What are the challenges for launching a new product or service? And how do you grow and scale a brand? With us in discussion on all of these matters from Blick Rothenberg, Senior Manager for International Business, Melissa Thomas, and our guests, uh, Angela Crouch from Nectar Sleep, that's a mattress selling company, and Lisa Robinson from Companions, an employee benefit company. Uh, I'm going to ask Lisa in a moment to tell us what her business is. Angela, why don't you start, though, with that? Tell me a little bit about you, about the company and your career. Hi, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. um, As you said, I'm Angela and I'm MD of Resident UK and that is a subsidiary of an American company. Uh, We are a house of brands in the homeware uh, good space, Nectar Sleep, uh, Dreamcloud Sleep and Cloverlane Home. We sell mattresses and uh, products um, like uh, sheets and towels and things like that as well. My background comes from e-commerce and technology. I'm known for helping American and European businesses increase their revenue by launching into new geographies, into new verticals. And I did that at Ancestry.com, at the Photobox Group and at Zoopla. And and now I'm focusing on selling mattresses and um, growing a brand in in the UK. So just to get it clear in our minds, are these American brands which are now launching in the UK or are these UK brands that just happen to have an American backing? Yes, I I think it's a bit of both. Mm. So the the traction came from the States launched in 2016. It did so well for them that they thought the next opportunity was the UK. Came to the UK in 2018 and said, look, let's localise this product for for the UK market. And that's what we did. Uh, We launched Nature Sleep in 2018. And business is good? Business is very good. Yes. There's money in sleep. There is. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know the value of a good night's sleep as Absolutely. well. Uh, Lisa Robinson from Companions. Companions um, spelt with two eyes in the middle and there's a reason for that. Tell me what it is. There is. Thank you for having me today. Um, yes, Companions was launched in December 2020. It's a companionship marketplace. Um, We now sell into companies to help them with diversity, inclusion, absenteeism, make sure that they're attracting and retaining talent. So saving them lots of money, basically, whilst helping their employees with the cost of living. The whole idea is it's a two-tier marketplace. So you have companions on one side of the marketplace, which are people who help in people's lives, a bit like caregivers, but they're not, you know, they're not nurses. Um, and on the other side, you have the employees. So they facilitate the employees to be able to, you know, attend work and be present at work and fundamentally productive for companies. At a practical level, that means what? If I was an employee, how would I turn to you for help? What sort of thing would you do for me? So if you were an employee, you would get in contact with either the Companions Customer Success Team or you would go onto our app 
and you would say, for instance, you had a three-year-old who's been sent home from nursery because they have a tiny temperature and you've got back-to-back Zoom calls. Uh, you would call up our team and you would say, is there anybody available or look on the app? And somebody would come around, they're all vetted, they have a DBS, they've been interviewed by us. Uh, so you know that they're, they're a good candidate to come around and spend time so that they can free you up so that you, you can be present in the other obligations that you have in your life. Your customers are who? The employers who engage you to provide those services for their employees or do the employees contact you directly? It's a great question. Um, we're a direct-to-employee company, so we sell companions in as a benefit to HR directors, VPs of people, CEOs sometimes, anybody who's making a decision about the well-being of their company or the employees of their company and anybody who's interested in, you know, reducing their attrition costs, making sure they're, retrain, they're, they're you know, retaining top talent. Um, but a lot of employees ask their managers if they can have companions. We recently had an example of um, a company at ACAST where one of the employees had just had a baby. Um, they used companions to help out with that baby. And then the wife of that employee then got in contact with us directly and said, I work for X company. Can, can you go in and pitch to my employer so that I can have this as a benefit because I'm returning back to work in two months and this can really help. So, you know, Predominantly, we sell into companies and we are a benefit that's available to employees through companies. Nothing more powerful than word of mouth, is there? And your customers being your brand ambassadors for this type of thing. Uh, Melissa Thomas from uh, Blick Rothenberg, you work with these companies, with companies like these. When we look at what our discussion is today, uh, launching, establishing a UK business, what are the first things that come to your mind? What's important? Communication and understanding your client. So um, as, as a team, I, I sit within the international tax team at Blick Rothenberg and we support more than 100 groups a year um, who are exploring UK opportunities. So they're what we refer to as our inbound clients or inward investment. So Angela and Nectar were, were one such client. And I think for me, where, where we really add our value is in helping demystify and address those questions that groups have when exploring new markets. Now, some of those will be tax and accounting related, some will be legal, some will be banking, some will be commercial. There's a whole breadth of unknown out there. There are a lot of common questions asked. There are a lot of repetitive answers given, but every fact pattern, every client situation is slightly different. And we certainly tailor our support to fit that particular fact pattern and to map out that journey that we envisage they're gonna be taking and how we interact and how we can support at each key milestone. And this is the importance of seeking advice. Mm -hmm. It's because it may be the same questions, but the answers are different. Yes, they are. They are. And certainly, we'll probably come on to this later on in the conversation, but what works for one group may not work for another. I'm just looking at Angela here and understanding her experience in previous roles that I'm sure what she has applied in in historical roles may not actually have, have applied to the, the sort of the current nectar situation. Angela, talk us through the journey of how you launch a product in the UK. Remembering, of course, that this was a product that had already existed in the United States. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It was a great advantage to have an American company that was already successful and tried and tested this product with um, their customers. So we, we had the advantage of taking the best of breed to the UK. But although the US and UK are both English-speaking countries, they are quite different um, if you think about um, compliance requirements, uh, 
the GDPR advertising. There was a whole localization process just to make sure that we were um, above board in, in every way. So that's localizing the customer experience and the physical product. But also, it's easy to find that the UK customer is different to an American customer. Our homes are different, our bed sizes are different, and the products that we have are slightly different in, in the US. So we started by looking at the, the, the marketplace, understanding what was already available there. And then I was lucky to find a UK manufacturer that was happy to work with me to help develop that physical product. We really needed to understand the reason to exist in the UK. It's a very crowded market and, and understand that we were bringing the customer something different. So we developed a product of high quality materials. We were the first to launch as carbon neutral. And then we were the first to launch with a 365 night trial. And that took the market by storm because nobody else had done that. So we, we couldn't have got there without knowing that we had a product of, of high quality to get us there. And, and was that instinctively known at the start of the journey that it, you, you couldn't just pick up what you had in the States and drop it? into the UK market, that there would have to be changes. Absolutely. And, you know, as setting up that company, um, it was important for me to understand that, you know, I was doing the best for the UK customer and not from just a, a legislative point of view, but really listening to the customer needs in the UK and, and, and addressing those. Um, I think there's always a place for taking what works in one area, but I think you need to just put it through that kind of brand machine for the UK customer and see if it sits well uh, for that customer. And Melissa, you worked with Angela in helping to take an already successful American business and launch it successfully in the UK. What's your perspective on this, particularly sort of how you build a value proposition that, that's relevant to the UK? It's working alongside Angela and her US counterparts to have a clear message as to what they're looking to achieve, the timeframes, um, to identify how we can directly support, how we can indirectly support. So part of my role in particular is not only guiding and demystifying from a tax and an accounting perspective, um, but also looking at, at wider issues and wider introductions and support that we can directly or indirectly offer. And then it's building out that, that roadmap, that journey, as I mentioned earlier, those key milestones to ensure that they are being addressed and that we're communicating with the right people on Angela and Nectar's slide to address those. So we're not overly burdening Angela as the key person in the UK who's responsible for driving this new initiative and all the wider commercial pieces that she's looking at. But perhaps, you know, we're liaising with the USHR team or the US finance team where more appropriate. We're liaising and coordinating with other domestic advisors to take that off Angela's desk to free her up to do what she does so well. And Lisa, your story, your perspective uh, is somewhat different. You're launching a homegrown uh, UK service. How did you launch that? What was your journey? Yeah, so we launched that in the UK in 2020 um, and we launched direct to consumer to begin with and then launched the B2B side of the business in November of last year. And we're seeing really good success from that already. So, you know, 54,000 women a year leave work once they've had children. Um, so there's a big demand for people who are kind of struggling to manage their work-life balance when they're going back to their careers. And it doesn't just affect women. There's many people who were already servicing, who are dealing with disabled people, people dealing with cancer in their lives, people who just need some extra, you know, TLC for their relatives. So that's kind of, the, that that's sold into companies to help them with, with 
you know, dealing with those employees who may end up just being an attrition number. And our, our story is very different. You know, we didn't, we, we're not funded by a US company, sadly. I was at Amazon for about eight or nine years and I've been in advertising for 20 odd years. So I'm used to having that big corporate team behind me. Um, so it's a lot of hustle doing it the way that we're doing it. You know, we're a startup, we're a seed funded startup with about 25 angel investors at the moment. So it's very different <laughs> to Angela's what the, experience. What were the first things you had to do? You mentioned the investors, for example. How did you find them? How did you get them interested in your idea? Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of that has come from introductions. So, you know, the, the one good thing, maybe there's plenty of good things, actually, but one of the good things that come out of setting up a business when you're a bit older and you've had a career is you're well networked. So, you know, I was became obsessed about this challenge when I went back to work at Amazon because I found it particularly hard to deal with. I had a sick kid who was 10 months old and an elderly mother. So I found firsthand experience how difficult that is. So I was very interested to understand, you know, how do companies go around supporting people because they want people to progress and they want women on boards and, you know, in senior leadership positions. But if they're not willing to change and make sure that those people are supported along a bump in the road, it's tricky. So, you know, I was lucky that when we started off, I went to my old CEO, I went to people I used to work with, people who were in my general network and said, you know, I'm obsessed with this idea because I can't, I think that I understand why there's this challenge in the world. And I've got a, at the time, a six month old, you know, girl and a two year old boy who I want to have equal opportunities for them. So, you know, that's really speaking to people who were in my network, they understood that problem. One of them, for instance, has got four girls who are all under 10. So, you know, it really resonates with people when they're actually, you know, this does help to solve that because it gives people fair opportunity to stay in the equity discussion. And that also helps you, I suppose, clarify what the, the purpose of the business is, what the, the services that you provide and who might be interested in paying for it. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's been brilliant since we've moved to our B2B model because, you know, when you're talking to VPs of people and HR directors and people who are speaking to their employees, they very quickly understand the problem. So, you know, we launched our business from a B2B perspective in November. We've already got nearly 15 customers and that's just from me talking to customers. You know, we don't have any other salespeople yet. We've just taken one on. So very quickly people are converting. And it's not only because it helps with, you know, gender equality, it can help with those ridiculously high attrition costs, you know, the cost of absenteeism and sickness and what have you. Um, but, you know, it also helps with employees with the cost of living. So employees or employers right now are very interested in having demos with us and then coming into our funnel. And Melissa, so many interesting sort of points from those perspectives from Lisa. One that struck me is that don't be afraid to use your network that you've built up over your sort of previous career. You will know people who might be able to help in unexpected ways. Absolutely. And I think um, that resonates with me and the service that I look to provide to to our clients and our, our team in general is it's not just about what Blick Rothenberg can bring to the table directly, but also in, indirectly in making introductions and in working collaboratively with other providers to ensure that seamless service. Let's set out some of the, the other early steps that you uh, need to take on this. Obviously, you have to do what Angela did, which is to check the products going to work mm -hmm. in the UK market that there is an appetite for that and that requires that there's no substitute for doing the market research for that is there 
No, there's not. And, you know, it's market research for your product. It's it's market research. And if we're going to make this work, if we're going to um, have an attempt at this, what are the results? What else do, do we need to, to factor in? And one of the, the key considerations when I look at the strategic hire that um, resident Nectar made in bringing Angela on board and to pick up from Lisa's point on addressing the um, retention and attraction of, of key employees, um, is getting those hires right. Those first people on the ground for you in the UK are, are fundamentally important. Now, whether for me, it's a strategic hire who understands the market, understands your product area, understands any regulatory environment that you may need to be addressing, is well-connected, well-networked, brings a team with them that essentially does your recruitment for you. Um, that initial people piece is, is a, a key piece of the jigsaw that I think a lot of groups sometimes don't dedicate enough time and attention to. You make it sound really simple, and yet it's got to be possibly the most difficult decision you will make. I think it is because you're, you're entrusting, especially when I'm looking at a model with an overseas group expanding into a new market, you're entrusting a team who can potentially be thousands of miles away with your brand, your goodwill, your name, your reputation. So making that hire right, spending the time, investing the time, doing your due diligence um, is, is critical. So we've done the ministry, you've made it sound so simple, but it's the most important decision uh, at that early stage. Angela, what happens if you pick the wrong person? You're in for a, a long slog. And um, when I set up Nature Sleep, I had the privileged position of having an excellent network. I've worked for some amazing companies and I've got the perspective of knowing outstanding talent when, when, I, when I see it. So I went knocking on doors and recruited some of the best people that I know and they're still with me uh, since day one that's five years later so that's that's a big deal I've, I've learned that lesson you have to hire the best that you can afford and give them full autonomy to do what they, they, they do um, working for an American company I, I had to make sure that I was over communicating and giving them direction from a local entity as to things that we need to think about that they don't have any awareness of remember you're the expert in the room because you're the one leading that that, that country's um, mission and, and strategy. And Melissa, another important learning from Lisa's story is uh, being nimble. Because Lisa flipped the strategy mm-hmm. fairly early on. That's I've got I've understood that correctly. That yeah, that's how so you'd we say it. We flipped from direct consumer uh, to B two B within really six months of the business. That's a pr- pretty fundamental and rapid change. It is. And, and I would imagine, Lisa, that's in understanding your market and how perhaps things weren't working as you envisaged that they would. Or, or, or you mentioned it as well, the timing with the pandemic. Was that a, a key factor for that change? Yeah, it was. So we launched the actual app in December 2020. And it was always our intention to launch it direct to consumer because, you know, we needed to get companions onto the platform. Um, and we needed to test out the product so to get product market fit to see that people want to use it. You don't know because it's, you know, do they want to go to, you know, an existing care way of caring, you know, or do they want to use other options? So, you know, it wasn't a mistake to do that, but it, we very quickly, you know, we launched in summer 2020. We couldn't let anybody do anything in 21. 
And then in December 22, we started letting people take in visits. And we, it was always in our plan to go B2B because of my experience of going back to work as a, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, very quickly, probably six months from January to June, we'd already kind of set out the tone. We're going faster into direct to businesses. So the pandemic accelerated something that was in your mind you were you were going to do anyway. Yeah, I mean, it was always going to be in the in the kind of first 18 months of launch. But of course, it, it stopped us because we had to stop doing everything for a year. Um, and then post the pandemic, then we, we, we moved very quickly to get into position um, and to start to talk to, you know, the, the quickest way for us to, you know, our vision is to help as many employees globally. Um, you know, and provide companionship for as many people as possible. So the quickest way to do that is through companies rather than individually on a direct consumer level. So nimbleness and speed is what I'm hearing from that. Yes. And listening to your market, listening to your team on the ground. Um, each jurisdiction is different. Plans change. Consumer patterns change. And I think having the ability to adapt to that is key. And some of the other sort of important lessons drawing from both uh, stories from Lisa and from from Angela as well Angela talked about how you make a successful product from the states more local to the UK so it is successful here and that brings in a whole range of different things not just knowing your 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 customer but also um, as Angela described compliance with local regulation mm-hmm Yes. So when when you're dealing with physical goods, for instance, you've got the matter of the supply chain, where the goods being manufactured, where they're going to be warehoused, which ports are they coming into, which countries are you selling into? Is it a B2B sale? Is it a B2C sale? Um, And then you have e-commerce. So there are complexities around, as I mentioned at the beginning, each company's different fact pattern and understanding and mapping that out and explaining it and being clear. And this is more than just for consumer goods. This is as true for other sectors, say, like software uh, or for uh, as it is for retail goods. Yes, it is. Yeah, I think there are complexities when you look at supply chains uh, with physical goods. Um, We've worked with a number of other e-commerce platforms, whether it's selling jewellery, homeware um, or mattresses such as Nectar. But then you have the technology aspect, um, large North American groups, as an example, coming into the UK, customising their product for or localising their product for UK consumer use. So is the web interface, as a UK user would expect, um, local support functions, language, spellings, getting rid of those Zs and replacing them with Ss, <laughs> different punctuation. You know, it's, it's, it can all be tiny things, but it can make a critical difference to how the, the product is received. Yeah, yes, Angela, you said we have the same language, but often we're divided by uh, the, the, the common language. Talk to me about how you built the brand. So when I think about building the brand, um, for me, what drove that were my need for trust and control. First of all, you need to develop a brand that the customer is going to really trust. So how do you build trust? And you start that with the product development, uh, which I mentioned before, which was making sure we had quality materials um, made in the UK, working with a, a, a you know highly respected manufacturer in the UK that then layered on to us feeling confident about going to market with a 365 night trial our customers can return the matches on day 364 if they don't want it and get a full refund. 
Um, so we stand by the quality of that, that product. We wouldn't offer it otherwise. And we were first to market with um, a forever warranty as well. So trust has to weave into everything that you do. And from that, uh, we built the customer experience. Um, you can actually speak to a human being at Nectar Sleep. Some of our competitors are only email or chat. Uh, we want to hear what our customers have to say. And from there, we get great trust pilot reviews. Um, this is a high value purchase. It's high intent. Uh, our customers will research it for a couple of weeks. They will look at reviews and then they'll make their decisions. So we need to make sure that ecosystem is um, is correct. It's, it reflects uh, what we're doing and, and, and the business. And we've got thousands of uh, Trustpilot reviews and an excellent score. And that builds over time. You have to keep building and building. Um, and I, I think the value proposition um, reflects that, uh, that we stay true and authentic to, to what we stand for. And you're not selling tins of beans. You're not selling a product that is used one day and then the customer comes back. You're selling something that many customers would expect to play an important part of their lives for a long time. Does that change your approach to the market? Does that change your thinking about that conversation you have with your customers? Absolutely. So it was important for me from day one to look at Made in Britain. So I wanted to make sure that I had full visibility and control of the product end to end. So that's full quality management. Um, I was also the first to launch a carbon neutral mattress into the UK. So our sustainability uh, pillars are, are, are very important to us. Um, the customer feedback is quite phenomenal. Our, our customers uh, will come back to us and tell us how this has changed their lives. You know, they're able to, you know, uh, deal with the challenges of the everyday. Everybody knows what it's like if you haven't had a good night's sleep. It's it's, it's awful, right? Um, so it feels really good to know that they love our products and that it, that we're cutting through. But that takes time. You know, day one, nobody knows who you are. And you've got to build that through consistency and, and, and quality of both product and um, that, that online experience. That's such an interesting point because th there are all, there are well-established names in the market already. Do you feel you needed your to get your customers to trust you more than they trusted the incumbents? Yes, absolutely. I think it was a crowded market. It's still a crowded market, and customers wonder why are you different? What you know? What's your reason to exist? And that's why we double down to make sure that it was both on the sustainability credentials where we index um, much greater than some of our, the incumbents and the 365 night trial and, and also the, the innovation of the product, the, the, the quality of the materials as well. Does that still matter in a cost of living crisis? I've often wondered this. You, know, you ask customers about, do you want to be sustainable? Do you want to hug a dolphin? Of course they do. But when they're counting every penny, do they still believe in it? I think it's a great question. And it's one we've, we've debated um, internally. And I think most customers will, will purchase with their wallet. Uh, we all have a budget. Um, however, if you're trying to differentiate 
yourself from other brands it just helps make that decision a little bit easier that that you see the sustainability credentials it makes you feel good you know when we recycle our mattresses we donate them to British Heart Foundation we've raised over 750,000 pounds for them I mean that feels pretty good to know that you're buying into a brand that does that um, that you're also made in Britain that you can speak to somebody and in the UK and I think all of that just helps you make that decision. Lisa, on your journey so far, what are the important things that you've learned? Very good question. Um, I would say what Melissa was saying about your team is super important because when you're starting off a company, you know, for us anyway, we started off with why. You know, why are we doing this? Because why are we going to leave our wonderfully paid, you know, jobs to come and do this and start from scratch again? So our why is quite is quite full on as to everybody on the team in terms of the purpose-driven business that we're doing. So I think if you don't have the right team who are on that bandwagon with you, it can become very obvious very quickly. Um, and that causes problems on teams because some people are less passionate about the, the mission that you're on. Um, not only that, if you don't have the people with the right skill set, it can become very evident very quickly. So I think that that's probably one of the first things that became very apparent it's different when you're on a big team and you're you know a big american company or whatever the case is it's it's, it's very obvious when you know we're a team of eight people and um, so it's taken us a while to really develop that glue in that team and it's just an essential part that we we think about a lot now like what do we need as we scale and grow and um, we're trademarked in you know the us canada Australia. So, what? Do, who do we need to help us to grow into those into those countries? Talk more about that growth. What are your plans? Yeah. So we're trademarked into a whole bunch of countries, the rest of Europe. The way that we envision our growth is via those companies that we're already onboarded with. So, a lot of the time, those companies will say, you know, they want to have parity on their benefits because they want to be inclusive to every country that they're in. So they're already asking us, are you going to be available in Holland? Are you going to be available in the USA? Uh, so, you know, not right now because we want to get enough market share in the UK and then we will scale to the US and the other countries that we're, that we're tra- that, you know, that we're trademarked in. But we'll grow with that, with those companies. But when you're looking at some of those overseas markets, is there an echo of the, the conversation we've had with Angela about how you take a US business and bring it to the UK? Are you having to have a similar set of conversations, but it's about bringing a UK business to the US? Exactly. Yeah. So it's really interesting being on this podcast today because, you know, it's the flip of what you've done, Angela. Um, And it's getting me thinking already, you know, what kind of conversations do we need to have, which have already had a lot of our investors are American Mm. um, or they're from Australia on purpose, you know, and they've been working in marketplaces. So we're already talking about that. But you know, just in terms of the work that Melissa does, you know, already, you know, you can start to think about who do we need to have it in place? What do we need to do from a legal perspective? So it's super interesting just kind of hearing you talk today. And are those investors with you for this ride as well? Or will you have to get new investors as the business expands? Yeah, so we'll have to, you know, we're, it's, it's, yeah, this is the other side going back to your question about, you know, what do you need, you know, you're always funding (laughs) It's one thing that I didn't really think about when I was setting the company up. I was very much why and what are we trying to drive towards? But actually every conversation that you have is a funding conversation fundamentally. Um, So at the moment we're in a seed round. So we're doing a follow on round to to the million pounds that we raised last year in terms of capital. 
Um, and I'm sure that some of the investors in our current cohort will go into that round. Um, but we're also looking for other investors. And particularly with that, I think, you know, Melissa mentioned something, which is having, you know, the right people from your network. So right now, I'm very interested in adding people to that network, like a VP of sales who will bring their team over. So trying to get somebody to invest who's, you know, interestingly, our CTO was an investor from our original um our original cohort of investors right when it was just an idea you know there was nothing done at that point and they invested money into it and now he's become our cto because he believes in what we're doing so much so i think you know having those kind of angels coming in can really help you to progress your business so melissa what are the broader lessons from lisa's experience I think funding can come with conditions. Um, it's probably at the discretion of the person who's got the, the bulging wallet. Um, but certainly what I was finding interesting about Lisa's experience is it sounds, I think, very reassuring that you've, you're building a very solid and broad foundation. And not only just with experience, but also enthusiasm and direction to help that business grow. So you mentioned that you've got investors who have interests in other countries. You're building a, a customer base that will hopefully help you expand not only domestically, but also internationally. And, and you've got that, that weight behind you. So many of the groups that we talk with who are looking at expansion and looking at understanding what the consequences are of these these opportunities are being driven by existing clients and existing clients needs and that's exciting because they, they're already part of the way there to proving that the concept can work they've got an appetite in the market they've got feedback from existing customers and clients in market that actually we love what you do we just love more of it we'd love more of a presence how can how can we help you do that collectively angela what's next for you I'm pretty excited about our omni-channel strategy. So we initially started as direct-to-consumer. We saw great growth um, during COVID, no surprises there. And we pretty much want to be where our customers are. So we took the decision to launch uh, Nectar Sleep into retail, and that's going really well. So we're in over 60 stores across the UK right now, working with some great partners. So we really want to grow that and, and grow the um, product offering there and continue to deliver on our sustainability uh, strategy as well. Uh, there's lots more to be done there. We want to reduce our emissions. We want to continue to innovate our products and um, pass that on to our customers. And Lisa, what's the, the, the dream of the future for you? So in the immediate future, so this year, our ambition is to, to have 100,000 employees being serviced by companions. So that's our immediate one. And that number goes significantly higher in further years. Um, but not just in the UK, that's globally. So our vision is to create, you know, the largest companionship marketplace that helps companies deal with, you know, gender inequality, you know, attracting and retaining people into the company. Um, and we want to do that on a global level. So this is what we're very much focused on. That is our why and helping families to make sure that, you know, people are able to go into work and be present and productive and stay in the equity equation. And what do you need to put in place to get you there? that you haven't got already? Uh, it's quite a lot. <laughs> and so, you know, the funding is one thing. So we will go into this funding round. We're going to be doing a big Series A funding round next year. Um, we need to 
have more people in our senior senior leadership team. We need to hire a chairperson. There's a whole bunch of hiring that we'll have to do. But first off will be the funding and then the hiring of, you know, who's going to lead the sales team, the customer success team, who's going to be the person who, you know, goes out and, and speaks to all of our, you know, com- companies that we're helping. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to do, as there always is in startups, but we're feeling really excited by the, the B2B presence that we've got going now so quickly um, and the feedback that we're getting from our customers. You know, it's not just the companies that we get that feedback from, it's the end employee or the mum of that employee and that feedback is what really gets us going you know it makes us excited to be helping all of those people um so we get excited about that that's kind of you know doing that on a global scale is um is exciting to create something from nothing Melissa, this keeps coming up in the conversation the quality of the team the quality of the people you need Mm -hmm. to get to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage Yes, absolutely. And I think that the message or one of the messages that we've covered today is it's not just your direct team, your employees, those who report to you, but also those you report to, but also that that wider network of which Blit Rothenberg is is part of um, and how that can support clients and businesses with this evolution. Melissa, Angela and Lisa, thank you very much for being with us and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us in this fascinating discussion. If you'd like to listen to other Brave Business episodes, you can find them on your favourite podcast service or for further insights to help entrepreneurial businesses, you can visit Blick Rothenberg's Entrepreneurs Hub. That's www.blickrothenberg.com slash entrepreneurs. I'm Declan Curry. This has been the Blick Rothenberg Brave Business Podcast. Thank you for being part of our conversation.